and welcome back to The Bunker, your daily politics and current affairs explainer. I'm Andrew Harrison. This time, we're going to send you to outer space to find another race for economic and political supremacy. Richard Branson's virgin orbit might have filed for bankruptcy, but the space sector overall is booming. Its value reached $464 billion in 2022, according to Euroconsult. Almost four-fifths of that was in services like satellite-based information and telecoms. And a report commissioned by the European Space Agency says the space economy is at a similar inflection point to the internet 20 years ago. Invest now or miss out on the next wave of Googles and Apples. Space is increasingly a focus of military confrontation as well. In the early days of the Ukraine war, a Russian cyber attack on satellites knocked out communications for large swathes of Europe. And the US is now launching satellites to deal with hypersonic missiles. So why are we going to space? What is there? Who owns it all? And who will be the space powers of tomorrow? These issues are all addressed in the latest book by Tim Marshall, author of the best-selling books The Power of Geography and Prisoners of Geography. It's called The Future of Geography, and the future is very much space-based. Tim Marshall, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you very much, and thank you for that comprehensive um, uh, introduction. Shall I go now? <laughs> yes, that's it. No, you really? That was, that, was, that was top stuff. I mean, you know, um, forgive me, I hope it's not patronising. You hit all the right notes there. <laughs> Well, the subtitle of the book is How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World. You make it clear that wherever humans go, politics goes with them. Uh, what, what made you want to write the book? The last chapter of uh, Power of Geography was about space. And I finished it and I thought, wow, there's so much more to say about this. George Orwell said that sometimes the hardest thing to see is what's right in front of your nose. It was just so blindingly obvious. Oh, yeah, of course. International relations, which is what I write about, has moved into space as well now. So... I better write about it. And there was more than enough uh, for a book. You know, I mean, one of the things about writing is knowing what to leave out as well as what to put in. And there was an awful lot of stuff that you wanted to put in, but had to leave out. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I confess to being, um, to having turned into a space nerd. Well, I've been one all my life, so welcome to the club. Um, I was fascinated by the notion of astropolitics, jockeying for strategic influence in valuable regions of space. I mean, but many of our regulars on this podcast considered, consider space to be a waste of resources. One of them even said space is a distraction, which I find, how can you be distracted by infinity? Do you know what I mean? Can you give, <laughs> give us a quick rundown of the, the resources that are available in, in near orbit? I mean, obviously, the, you know, the moon, there's water for hydrogen, yeah. for fuel, things like this. That's the big one. Geopolitics starts with geography and says, okay, here are, here's the physical terrain and here are the rivers and the mountains. And they partially say what you can and what you cannot do. And so I wanted to extend that to space because it's similar. You know, there are things you can and you cannot do. And certain nations can and certain nations can't. So I've written about that, that geography. And then when, once we're out, there's, I was going to say the world is our oyster, but the universe is. You've got the potential for huge uh, fields of solar panels, which will be harnessing the sun's energy 24-7, because there's no nighttime up there, and beaming it back down here, which I think is a lot cleaner than burning fossil fuels. Meteorites, and it's only we've already landed on a meteorite. The Japanese have already developed uh, machines that can mine a meteorite. So those things will happen. And there are meteorites they've already found, which they think have got more rare earth metals on them than the entire US economy is worth in one year, which is about $35 trillion. And then when you move to the moon, 
On the moon, there again is is just it's stacked full of rare earth metals and and silicon and uh, titanium and lithium, the very things that we are despoiling the planet here to get because they are simultaneously the very things we need for the twenty first century world technology. Your car and your phone are full of these things, but of course it's incredibly difficult uh, and in the short term still pretty expensive. But we're well on the way. Uh, Artemis uh, mission is uh, intends to land a man and a woman on the moon in 2025. And the Artemis mission, US-led, and China and Russia both intend to have moon bases by about 10 years after the next, the next moon landing. And that brings us into the realm of international competition, because when you say that there is an asteroid worth more than the entire value of the US mm. economy, to me... That's a Hollywood pitch for a, your first space war. There will be disagreement over the ownership of uh, this particular asteroid, which brings us to the question of space law. Who owns this stuff? It does, but, but first I've got a top economic tip. If they ever find one that's massive and made of solid gold and you've invested in gold, sell it very quickly because yes. it'll be worthless. Yeah, there's a problem here, isn't there? Because the Outer Space Treaty, uh, 1967, clearly states that that space is the the common good of humanity and it cannot be appropriated and owned by any one state. But I just don't think anyone's going to take any notice of that. And the Moon Treaty uh, in the 1970s, hardly anybody ratified it. Neither of those treaties take into account the technology of the 21st century because they were written 50, 60 years ago. So I just don't think we have a legal framework to deal with this. And the best example I came across is the Artemis Accords. There's 23 countries have signed it. They're bilateral agreements between America and the other 22 signatories, Britain, uh, Nigeria, Japan, UAE, places like that. And in them, there is an article that says, when you get there and you get your shovel and spade out and you start digging, you can declare a safety zone which, you know, it would be dangerous if you came into that because, you know, we're working here, guys. Fine, but, you know, if the Russians pull up next to you and get their shovels and spades out, you're going to say, well, well, it says in the Artemis Accords, and they're going to say, well, we never signed them. So I just, I just don't think that we have the necessary globally agreed legal frameworks, and I think that's going to add to the existing tensions, which I suspect will, will get worse the more of us and the more stuff there is out there. Are there any historical analogies? I mean, can we look back to, I don't know, 17th century expanding city-states? You talk about colonialism on Earth as a possible analogy for space. But of course, when we were co- when the West was colonising other countries, there were people there. And as far as we know, there aren't people in the places when we might go into space. Indeed not. Um, I mean, it's, it's a contentious word saying you colonise them. I mean, I personally haven't got a problem with it, but I, I do recognise, you know, that the word has uh, very negative connotations. There are some parallels in the past. I mean, one of them, in my world, in, in, in um, international relations, there is a saying that the flag follows the trade, meaning that when a, a, a state's commercial enterprises get out there and they become so important that they're actually very important for the state's economy, then the flag follows, the state follows. The best example is the East India Company in the period you mentioned. Uh, they actually ended up having their own private army. Uh, they were so big. And then the, the Britain and the empire realized, uh, actually, we better incorporate them. And, and they were actually incorporated into the British military. So the flag followed the trade. And I think there'll be a, a lot of that over the next 10 years. I, I cannot see if, for example, 
two or three nations are all in the same region of the moon, which will be the South Pole, probably, near the Shackleton Crater. I can't see that if it's become if it becomes so important to country A's economy, they will not be sending up state apparatus to ensure that everything's okay up there. The euphemism of state apparatus, that's basically military is what you're talking about, surely. Uh, well, I, I couldn't possibly comment, Miller, but <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, for example, and, th- and this goes back to the Antarctic Treaty, I think, where the Russians have one definition and the Americans have another. The Russian definition is no military and the American definition is no aggressive military. So if you, you know, fast forward that onto the moon, then from the American definition, well, like, you know, I'm only sending a few things for defensive purposes. And then another country says, hang on a minute, and then they better have their defensive purpose. And it's the same with the satellites, actually. You know, the satellites are so integral, both to modern warfare and to the world economy. There are many defensive measures, which states already have for their satellites. I'm pretty confident that give it a few more years and they will have offensive capabilities up there. Four countries already have offensive capabilities they've tested to hit a satellite from the Earth already. That's India, China, USA and Russia. And you described uh, China conducting a, a test on a satellite killer where they they destroyed one of their own satellites in a, a process you described as like hitting a bullet with a bullet in you know, a very difficult, precise operation, but it can be done. It can. I mean, it's incredibly difficult, but the four countries I mentioned have done it, causing more or less debris. Um, They've all caused debris, but the Chinese one and the Russian one caused so much space debris, which of course is a a serious problem, which we're having trouble tracking. And these things fly, you know, bits of metal flying around the the orbits at 300,000 miles an hour or whatever it is. You know, you, you don't want to get in the way of that. And again, we don't have the laws yet to say, let's all ban they're called ASATs, direct ascent uh, attack. They've all tested these missiles. The Americans have proposed uh, a, a global ban on testing such a thing, but the Chinese and the Russians don't agree with the wording of it because they know they're slightly behind in in the space technology, and so they don't want to lose that capability. And so, you know, I mean, that's the nexus of the book in a way: international relations down here and the, and the tensions and competition down here are now being absolutely replicated out there. You do talk about different countries' models of space exploration or colonization or militarization, whatever you want to call it. America still has the kind of new frontier paradigm, you know, back to Kennedy. China has more of a centrally controlled collectivist uh, model, which you could flatter by describing it as the for all mankind model. You could also look at it as the, uh, the totalitarian vision of space. Is there a philosophy behind the European model? That is more collegiate, uh, if you like. I mean, you know, I don't believe for a moment that the Chinese model is 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 for the good of all mankind. It, it is for the good of China. You know, they they are nationalists uh, with Chinese characteristics. The European Space Agency, which is um, to a great deal funded by European Union countries, but it it is wider than the EU. You know, there are other European countries in it, UK, for example, and they do take a much more cooperative approach. Certainly with each other in the, in the several dozen countries that are on it. I mean, there's obviously there's leaders in it, the French and the Italians, for example, pretty good. Italians are, have some technological brilliance in, in the space race. But they also do reach out to other, other states, other countries that they're happy to you know, have an agreement with 
the Nigerians, the, um, you know, if they want help getting their satellites up, because the Nigerians are making their own mini satellites now. And, and they've got joint enterprises with all sorts of people, including the Chinese. So they are happy to reach out around the world in a way that the Americans mostly aren't. Because, for example, the Americans, for understandable reasons now, have cut cooperation with Russia in space. There's a few strands still clinging on. But the Wolf Amendment, which uh, the, the, the congressman put in an amendment of 10, 15 years ago, bans NASA from cooperating with the Chinese because the idea, you know, they're going to use our tech, steal it, and there is a long history of China intellectual theft, intellectual property theft. And so they're not allowed to cooperate with each other, whereas, you know, in the, in the past, in the 60s and 70s, even when detente was really breaking down between the Soviet Union and America, the cooperation they had in space was actually this bridge that remained, it was a channel connecting them. But I'm afraid Congress has cut NASA off from China in a way that the Europeans have not. Coming back to the idea of the 17th century model, you know, we were used to Russia and Germany being land powers, British sea power, the decline of British sea power. Who's on course to be the first space power is it china it's the big three uh usa china and russia with russia seriously struggling for a whole bunch of reasons both economic but also you know they've always been pretty good at space but they don't really make very much apart from kalashnikovs and oil and gas and they're not particularly in, uh, innovative and that with the funding and a declining population, Russia is beginning to fall behind, but they are still absolutely in this three. You've got China really catching up quite quickly. They still don't put as much into the budget, although it's hard to find their budgets because it's, you know, it's a totalitarian society. They don't really publish these things, whereas we know NASA's budget. But, but the experts can work out that they're still not spending as much. But my goodness me, they are churning out X tens of thousands of top scientists out of their universities with their massive population. And they are also beginning on the commercial side. There's more than a hundred space startup companies in China, and one of them will be the next SpaceX. So, you know, I just think it's going to be USA, China, almost in parallel, Russia behind them and perhaps lagging. And then it's quite a step down to the second tier countries like the UK, Japan. UAE, Israel, France, Italy. I'm amazed we're in the second tier. It's because when the empire receded, we were smart enough to leave behind lots of concrete all over the world. It's all, I mean, I, learned, I remember learning this as a young reporter, but some uh, military intelligence guy, which is not an oxymoron, by the way. Some military intelligence guy said to me, always look where the concrete is. And it was a great lesson. Um, I mean, we couldn't have done the Falklands without the concrete we had, which was Ascension Island. So the Brits left behind lots of bits of concrete all over the world. Bases, you know, Cyprus, Hong Kong, Ascension Island, Falklands. And then they realized, you know what, we can't talk to each other. We need to be able to talk to each other. And so the British put up a, a, a satellite system. Um, and, and to this day, it's operating on its, on its sixth iteration now. And it's partly because of that that we are, we are in the second tier and our science, you know, we're still a very, very uh, forward-thinking scientific nation. And we've got a space command formed a couple of years ago, 
again, it's quite forward thinking. Uh, there's only a handful of countries that have space commands within their military and the UK is one. So, you know, they're very much second tier with no chance of becoming first tier, but they are a second tier power. While we're speaking of space commands, by the way, did you enjoy the launch of Germany's space command the other day where somebody thought it was a bright idea to have Star Wars stormtroopers and Darth Vader in the background? I am your father. Fa- what is a German for father? Father? I think it's father. Ich bin deine Vater, yeah. I think. I mean, honestly, I know, I know it was for charity. That's a good thing. But couldn't you have had a separate sort of charity thing and raise money and that's a good thing <laughs> and not make your space command look a bit silly, which is what they did. Darth Vader stood there. I mean, please. Also, also, but I, t- I love the fact that the, the German one is called Welter Kommando. I mean, that's fantastic. You know, commando, ooh, world command. But it, it, it's a literal translation. It's something like world commando. But the actual tran- uh, is, is simply uh, VMR space command, which is a bit dull. I would watch that film. The elephants in the room the space elephants, is that it's actually not purely countries will make the running as much as billionaires like Elon Musk. And you are yeah. very wary of this. There's a fantastic bit from the book, which I just want to uh, quote. It's the terms of service for Elon Musk's Starlink service, his orbiting internet, which say that for services provided on Mars or in transit to Mars via Starship or other spacecraft, the parties recognise Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. Accordingly, disputes will be settled through self-governing principles established in good faith at the time of Martian settlement. And you quote the British space expert Dr. Blethyn Bowen as saying, as I understand it, Starlink has no legal right to put that in their terms of use because UN authority exists on Mars. That's all well and good, but who reads the TNCs? Least of all when you're on Mars. Yeah. It's essentially Elon the first king of Mars imposing his own yep. system on a new planet. Yeah, and I can't resist repeating the joke I put in, which I smell a muskrat. Hey! Well, um... <laughs> But it's actually very forward thinking. Um, You know, it's a first strike, first legal strike across the bows of the nation state. Basically is saying, I'm I'm the sheriff of Mars. Don't bother calling uh, anyone back home. I immediately thought of the 13 colonies of the US, you know, having to kowtow to uh, the the British crown and eventually thinking, nah, not going to do that and having a revolution. You know, and there are there are sci-fi novels based on this uh, this idea, and it, it would be inevitable. I mean, you know, in way 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 past 2050, Musk's idea of having a million people on Mars in 2050 is fantasy. Can you imagine the people on Mars in their towns, cities, or whatever, if it, if it ever happens? And I think it probably will. So allowing countries back in the in, on Earth to dictate what they can and can't do from 350 million miles or what, no chance. So, you know, it's just his shot across the bows. Sorry, but yeah, you're right. This is one of the big differences between the 60s and 70s space race. A, this is more military, and B, it's much more commercial. 60s, 70s essentially was about which system is superior, both politically and scientifically, technologically. And that's why both sides were trying to get to the moon first, because that would prove it. We know who won. This time, it's it's not about that technological brilliance. I mean, there's a little bit of element of that, but it is far more commercial and military. And unlike the 60s and 70s, where there was a commercial aspect to it uh, with with private companies, you know, uh, working with NASA, now the private companies are front and center and SpaceX is a a, a big part of um, the Artemis mission. And uh, the Italians, for example, I think are making one of the modules 
for, for the uh, moon landing and the Japanese are, are doing some of the hydraulic arms for the space station that's going to be built. Another, a Toyota are building a, a big rover like the old moon buggies, but they're going to be sealed. So you can actually take your spacesuit off inside and drive around. And another Japanese company is pioneering um, satellites that have grappling arms that be able to get hold of defunct satellites and throw them into the orbit so they burn up to get rid of space debris. This is, well, you mentioned it in the introduction, didn't you? And, and the figures you had were approximately the same as I understand it, 450 billion a year. But the projections are that this, this industry will be worth at least a trillion dollars a year by 2030. You know, it, it will more than double. Just to wrap up, this book is an exploration of exploration. You literally are looking at the next frontier of where the human race is going to go, what we're going to find there, what it's going to do to us back home. Were there things that you discovered while writing it that surprised you? I enjoyed writing the early chapters quite a lot because I did learn stuff from that. Um, the early chapters, just two or three of them, they just set up how we've thought about the cosmos and the stars and the moon and the planets, infinity distances through the ages, from, you know, going back 30,000 years and then through the Greeks and the, the Babylonians and the, 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 the Islamic glorious uh, centuries, Newton, Copernicus. I learned a lot of that because, you know, my head's been in international relations for so long. I, I, I don't get much time to go into all that stuff. So I, I did learn a lot about, the history of science and thought and the nexus between that. And then the rocketry, you know, the science of getting out there, the Russian theorist, Tilskovsky, who even before Kitty Hawk, the plane took off, was drawing uh, airlocks in space stations. So, yeah, I learned a lot about that. Well, I'm in my mid-50s, and ever since I was a kid, it's kind of been a given at the back of my brain that eventually I'll be living in space. I'm starting to think that I won't. I'm starting to think that it's unlikely. When do you think the first viable colonies for a kind of not technically gifted individual like me will be happening? Yeah, well, Musk had his own pretty good joke. I'd, I'd like to die on Mars, just not on impact. And he was talking about a million people in 2050, but I've looked at the tech, I've looked at the cost, and I've looked at the timing You know, of how many a million people, you know, you're not going to be ready till 2030. So you're going to put, you know, just do the maths over 20 years, a million divided by 20 and see how many people you've got to get up there. It's not going to happen. I think it's realistic to think that we will have moon bases in the mid 2030s for people working. And in Mars, a similar scenario, maybe by about 2050. But if you're talking about you and me, uh, no. Uh, and our grandchildren should be lucky enough to have them, possibly. Yeah, I can I can see by 2080, there may be colonies and people who just, you know, that's it. They live there and they, they're engineers and they're miners and they're whatever. But 2050, no. But I, I do think it will happen. And this goes to the sort of the hippie in me or, or, or the, you know, there's two reasons to go out there. Uh, I, I love the first one more than the second. Because the first one is the same reason we went to the top of that mountain, the same reason we set out across that ocean, not actually knowing what the hell was there when we come back. That is why we're really going, you know, and that's that sort of spark of, of humanity and that restlessness. And that's why, you know, I don't care if someone says to me, here's the tech reasons why not, here's the financial reasons why not. They will be trumped by the human spirit. I absolutely agree. Mars needs podcasters.
Tim Marshall, thanks for talking to me. The book is absolutely fascinating. You're kind, um, and thank you for your time. The Future of Geography, uh, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World, is out on the 27th of April. It's available for pre-order right now, and there's a link in the show notes. If you're lucky enough to read it in zero gravity, you won't be able to put it down. Hey! Hey! <laughs> we can't be the first podcast in space. Somebody's already done it. But you can help us to maintain the search for intelligent life on Earth by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding site. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. We'll be back tomorrow with another small step for pod, but a giant leap for podkind. This is it. Everything in readiness for contact and capture. Houston copy. Stand by for personnel check. Stand by. Still watching. Okay, here comes step three. Houston copy. Roger Houston. A. Harrison. J. Jarvis. K. Tomachevich. A. Reese. J. Parrott. K. Dickinson. Good. Steady approach. Go for launch. How's it doing business with you?